captain shouted as he staggered down the hatch, shaking his rubber crutch at his mother-in-law, who was swinging from the yard arm. Drunk again. Get up, George. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just couldn't help that. Uh, I'm just back. And uh, I, I uh, uh, this is uh, going to be an atypical show tonight. Uh, for one thing, Lee, would you please close this door here? Please, somebody left the door to the studio open, and God knows who's going to wander in. Yeah, you never know. Yeah, that old lady swinging from the yard arms. I'll become swinging in here with a rubber crutch. Well, uh, the reason that I would like to uh, point out that this is going to be a very atypical show. George, you listening, man? I have just returned from a voyage, a trip, the like of which I doubt whether there is... Well, it's, it's a microscopic percentage of the people in the world have ever done it. I would... I, I... Maybe a few airline people, but that's about it. In exactly seven days, I went around the world. I have just come back from around the world, George. Didn't you know I'd even gone? <laughs> that reminds me of a famous Charlie Brown cartoon. I'll, I'll never forget uh, this cartoon. It's one of the very early Charlie Brown cartoons. And uh, that was early in his days as a loser. And uh, Charlie was at home saying he, he obviously was uh, looking kind of sick, see, so... He was sick, so he had a headache or something, so finally he picks up the phone and he calls his friend and he says, uh, he says, say, he said, I'm sorry, I couldn't come to the party. He said, but I'm really sick. I couldn't come to the party. You, and he's holding the phone up. You hear a lot of whooping and yelling. You hear the party going on. And the voice comes out of the phone and says, gee, Charlie, we didn't know that you weren't here. And... <laughs> He went up the phone, looked around. Well, now, that's the truth. I hear I've just come back from around the world. I'm serious. I, I went around the world in one week, and uh, purposely. Uh, yes, you know, I mean, you know, do something like that uh, accidentally, you know. You, you have to plan it. And I uh, went around the world in one week, and it's a very, very strange experience. I don't know of any other travel experience. In fact, I don't know of any experience that you can have in this world that remotely approaches that. It's a very curious experience uh, to, uh, to go around the world. And, and uh, the world becomes, how can I say it? It becomes something that it was not before you left out on the trip. For one thing, the world seems to be almost nothing in size. It's minute. <laughs> it's frighteningly little. And uh, I'll tell you the route that I took around the world. I left New York City uh, uh, from uh, JFK, uh, John F. Kennedy Airport, at 7 o'clock at night, Saturday night, a week ago this past Saturday, and uh, took out and headed off across the Pacific Ocean. And how it happened, a friend of mine who was, who was an airline type, friend over, over at Pan Am, he called up and he says, how would you like to take a trip around the world in one week? I said, yeah. <laughs> you don't turn that down. And so I quickly made the arrangements and I took off. And and uh, I left uh, on the 7 o'clock, it was there at 7, 7.15 roughly the time was, and took out across the Pacific, or the Atlantic rather. And a few hours later, it seemed just like almost uh, momentarily later because you know, on, on these uh, 747s, 
when they got a good tailwind behind them, moving fast. You barely finish your meal. It's scary. You know, you're you're barely finishing the uh, the uh, the cuvoisier at the end of the meal. You know, they come along, they lay this stuff on you, you know, and they yeah, you know, and you're laying there, you you kind of lolling back, and and already you're getting the uh, the, the curious uh, jet malaise. You get a curious feeling that, that I always have felt guys who have lived all their lives in a really first-class harem must get. You know, a, a sated feeling. Uh, heady with rich perfumes. <laughs> and, and it seemed like almost momentarily the plane is coming down and we're in Heathrow, which is the London airport. And uh, being London, of course, it's raining. And uh, it was kind of drizzly and cold. And I walked through the long passageway. They got long. The London airport is curiously sterile. Now, if you think most airports are sterile, this is a sterile, sterile one. It's a, it, it seems to consist largely of pieces of aluminum hooked together by pieces of dirty glass, and uh, <laughs> over which there's a thick layer of cruddy rain that's coming down over London. And so I walked through this long passageway. And then uh, it's it's morning there, you see now, and it's still night back in New York, see, but it's morning here, kind of a gray, dreary, drizzly morning, and uh, and all the, the the people who were working around, they had this gray, pasty look in the face, you know, they up in the morning, and and even an Englishman looks rotten at that hour of the morning. You'd be surprised; they just don't make it, you know. In spite of being all of you know, with Richard the Lionhearted in their background, it still doesn't make any difference. You know, they still got glands, and they still, you know, their eyes starting to look red at that hour. So, I get in the line there with a lot of other ladies, and here it is. I'm in London, see suddenly, and I've been in this airport a lot of times, and it's you, know, you get a when you travel around a lot, the airports get to be like second home. They're your reality. You know, you look around, and say, oh look, they. Uh, They've changed the uh, cigarette stand now. Oh, I see they moved the bookcases over there now. Yeah. Oh, they've got a new lady working. Yes. And so, you, know, you get like that. So I'm in the line there, and I have myself a scone and some, some British tea, and I'm sitting there waiting. And uh, I'm waiting for the next uh, leg to go, and they're, they're servicing the plane, which means they sweep out all the stuff and throw out the drunks and all that. So finally, the plane is cleaned up, and I get back in a plane, and we take off, and now... The plane just makes one big arc swoop, you know, shoom, up, and shoom, it's down. And now I'm in Frankfurt, Frankfurt, Germany. Well, I've been in Frankfurt many times, and the, the airport there is an old friend. I'll tell you one thing about Frankfurt. No matter how long you go there, no matter how many times you've been in Frankfurt, there's one thing you can't get used to. Uh, men, I'm talking to the men here. Uh, women's lib, uh, be damned. This is something you never can get used to that every time you go to the John in the airport in Frankfurt, there are three ladies in the John. Yeah, they work in the John there, see? And they come and they watch you. Yeah, they do. They, they wear these blue smocks, you know, and they come right in there. You know, there you are, you know, what do you do? You don't have to watch. You have to pretend like they're part of the furniture, but they ain't part of the furniture because the three ladies are roughly 18, 19, and 20 years of age and highly nubile. So here you are, you know, it's, you, you don't, <laughs> it, it, it takes a little while, but it depends on, on the urgency of your need as to how long it takes to break down the inhibition. And uh, so you walk in there, you know, and after a while you finally say, well, what the hell, I might as well, see, and uh, you wind up, you, you tip them, see, you, you throw them a, a, you know, a six fennig thing and, and uh, you, you leave, you know. It's a, it's an, an enlivening experience at the crack of dawn. So you walk out and, 
And uh, everybody, you notice another thing too in the Frankfurt Airport, very different from the uh, from the English airport. Everyone in the English airport, uh, the uh, the early morning is is drinking tea, but in uh, in the German airport, everybody really is. It's, it's morning. It's real morning and morning morning. It's like a, what would be the equivalent of like eight thirty, seven thirty in the morning here. All the all the Germans look very sleek. You know, their hair's all combed back. They wear their hair real long back. You see, like that, and, and the, these elegant suits with a pinch waist and all that. And uh, what are they doing? They're all sitting around drinking schnapps, drinking schnapps with their beer, you know. And uh, so I joined right in, you know, what the hell. I went in Rome, I'll tell you, when you're in Frankfurt, you schnapp it up. So I'm sitting there drinking the schnapps in the early morning. Well, they, they've tooted the horn, and I'm back in a plane already, you know. I'm, 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 I'm halfway, I'm maybe a third of the way around the world, see. Plane takes off, and man, I am headed for the, for the wild blue this time. And uh, I'm on my way to Istanbul. Oh, that's it. Uh, now we're getting there. You know, that's where you can, you can really taste exotica. Well, uh, we we landed <laughs> we landed in Istanbul, and of course uh, you've you, you've seen Istanbul. Well, when you're traveling around the world in a week, it's like uh, it's like you're traveling through all the outtakes of all the John, James Bond movies you saw. Now you know what is it? An outtake? That's the stuff that lands on the cutting room floor. You know, the blurred shot of uh, two cabs uh, running into each other just off camera, you know, that weren't supposed to be there. Two guys arguing over, uh, you know, at the cigarette stand in the background. Uh, A dog doing what a dog does on the left wheel of a Peugeot in the back there. See, all these things. Well, you're seeing all the stuff, you know, that you don't ordinarily see in the movies at these places. Saying there it is, you know, guys sniping butts and all that stuff. So here I am, you know, in the middle of Istanbul. I'm in the middle of the outtake world, you know. And of course, uh, one, uh, what what I one of my problems, you see, is as a performer, as an actor, is it is it I can't help myself. I instinctively, I'm like a chameleon. I instinctively begin to take around, I take on the accents and the the uh, you know the the the, uh, the cultural coloration of of the people wherever I am. See, so uh, the minute I'm in Istanbul, I I begin to sit there with heavy lids in the eyes, you know, and uh, yeah. You know, as if I'm waiting to meet the mysterious lady who has just crossed over the border from East Germany, Mitter Films, and uh, <laughs> and I have my information concealed in the hollow of my left heel, you know, and uh, <laughs> the two of us are going to have a uh, <laughs> yeah. You just can't help it. That place is you know it's rife. I hey, any minute now I expect to either see Alec Guinness or or uh, or uh, you know uh, Peter Sellers, uh, cleverly disguised as a streetcar motorman, you know. Uh, but uh, there I am in the middle of Istanbul, and I've just barely left New York. My my head is still back in the village. You know, my mind is still working in the village, but my body is in Istanbul, partly. Uh, it, it never comes entirely. So I'm sitting in Istanbul and, and uh, drinking uh, drinking co- coffee. You know, they have this, uh, they have this uh, Turkish kind of coffee, which I happen to like. By the way, before we go any further, we got a lot of commercials. And, and this is a, an introduction show tonight to the thing because I took along a tape recorder and I'm going to do a whole series of shows the next three or four shows on this trip around the world if you want to want to really have an ex- by the way speaking of, of trips let's let's give you this uh, yeah here we've got a we've got a goodie here for those of you who would like to take a very interesting trip there you are you know you're stuck in traffic how would you like to be driving up the coast of Portugal man right now stopping off for lobster and wine oh voila well, you can on our incredible eight-day fly-and-drive tour for only $270, including round-trip airfare, because a TAP, the Intercontinental Airline of Portugal, 
they put Portugal on sale until the 30th of April. And uh, if you're sitting behind your desk and you'd like to be playing golf on the fantastic velvet greens of Portugal, well, I would like to suggest that you can on their eight-day jet-set golf tour for only $299. That's including round-trip airfare. And you play on these fantastic golf courses. They're some of the greatest in the world in Portugal. So uh, you call your travel agent or call TAP for complete details. And it's only till the end of this month. The number is 421-8500. The sale ends April the 30th, and it's a great buy. Yeah, this is uh, WOR New York, and uh, we're going to have a lot of this stuff here. Lester Smith's going to be along in about 10, 15 seconds here with, with the information what's happening out in Wisconsin. But, you know, my head is not here yet. You know where I am right now, still psychologically? I'm in the Ginza. Psychologically, I'm still in Tokyo. And it's easy to be psychologically in Tokyo, I'll tell you. Oh, I'll tell you. So, you never think of the Japanese in those terms. <laughs> but, uh, well, what the heck, you know, the, the kids are asleep, you can be honest. Uh, this is WR New York. We'll be back in a few moments. It's exactly 10.30, and it's time now for Lester Smith with a report from Wisconsin. Come on in, Les. 23% of the vote has now been tabulated in Wisconsin's Democratic presidential primary, and I think it's safe to say that a pattern has definitely emerged, which, barring some kind of a major shakeup within the next hour or so in the counting of these votes, uh, that pattern is likely to remain pretty much as is. And as a result, it would seem there is one winner in the Democratic primary here in Wisconsin and a number of very serious losers. So let's check some figures for you. As I say, we have 23% of the vote or 760. Well, here's the later one. We now have one-fourth of the vote counted. 816 of the 3,290 statewide voting precincts. Running ahead, and he has been here all night, is Senator McGovern of South Dakota with 29% of the vote. He has never dropped below 29%. He was at one time as high as 32 or 3%. 29% of the vote with 106,631 votes is cast and counted. In second place is Senator Hubert Humphrey. Now, this was pretty much the way the observers were picking out McGovern-Humphrey race for first and second, with Humphrey probably trailing, but not by very much. However, in this statistic, he is. He is down now to 22%. He had at one time been as high as 28. He's dropped down. Uh, he had held at 23% for quite a long time, but is now down to 22% of the vote with 82,155. Coming up very fast on the outside is Alabama's Governor George Wallace, who now has 20% of the total votes counted. 25% of all the votes have been tallied. Wallace has 20% of them, or 72,210. As a consequence, it is still conceivable, perhaps, that Wallace might even overtake Humphrey, in which case it would be a staggering blow to Humphrey. Uh, the, the manner in which he is trailing Humph uh, Senator McGovern in itself is a bad enough blow to him. But even worse off is Senator Edmund Muskie of Maine, who now has only 12% of the entire vote, which now marks a third of the four primaries in which he's been entered, in which his showing has been surprisingly poor, particularly for the man who was so high up in the lists, uh, no more than, let's say, uh, uh, at the turn of the year. Uh, he has 12% of 42,000 votes. Senator Henry Jackson is uh, is not doing well. He's got 8% in fifth place. And Mayor John Lindsay, despite his protestations that he will continue to campaign in Massachusetts, Oregon, and California, uh, certainly must be considered pretty much out of this whole picture. He has 7%. He's back down in sixth place, which is exactly where he was in Florida. 
Now, to give you an idea of what's happening perhaps throughout the state, there are nine congressional districts. Senator McGovern is doing surprisingly well in all of them. As you know, uh, he is the, the extremely liberal candidate amongst the Democrats. There were certain congressional districts where he was not expected to do well. He is leading on seven of the nine congressional districts. The only two in which Senator Humphrey is leading are uh, those two congressional districts which are adjacent to the state of Minnesota. They are essentially um, a farm country, and uh, in many respects, uh, Humphrey was a sort of third senator for the people in, in these districts through his farm votes. Unlike Florida, where Wallace led in every congressional district but one, he is not leading in any, but he is running a strong second in three of them. Uh, in uh, the first district, which, surprisingly enough, is the center uh, of... Uh, of labor unrest, not surprisingly enough, it would be expected he might do well, although McGovern is doing extremely well there. Wallace is running ahead of Humphrey. He is also uh, running second in the second congressional district, which is uh, in the center of the state and which is also an area uh, where this is interesting because it is the center of liberal democratic strength, but also strong conservative farm vote, and Wallace is running second there. Uh, and uh, throughout the rest of the state, he's, he's holding his own. Now, in the important area of such things as delegates, uh, he does not have any. The delegates so far are divided up between McGovern with 54 and Humphrey with 13. The Wallace third place showing has not as yet gotten him any delegates. So as we say, that is our picture with more now than 25%, 26% of the vote. McGovern still 29%, Hovern 20, Humphrey 22, Wallace with a strong 20%. He is trailing... Humphrey by less than 10,000 votes, actually. Muskie a poor, thir a poor fourth. Uh, Lindsay and Jackson uh, a very poor fifth and sixth. That's our report from WR's primary headquarters in Wisconsin. Back now to WR in New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Les. And uh, this is me back, old Gulliver here. And uh, <laughs> uh, hit the ding-dong, will you please? Uh, will you, George, please? Oh, I love them horns. Yeah. Oh, well, right now, General Tire is having a great anniversary sale on the famous General Jet White Wall. Listen to this, friends. Strong, four-ply, nylon core General Jet tubeless white walls in popular size, 650.13. It's a lovable size. Now, anniversary priced at only 66 bucks for a complete set of four tires. Federal excise tax is 175 per tire. And for big car owners, larger sizes of the long mileage General Jet White Wall are on sale at comparable savings. Yes, mount your General Jet White Walls today, but hurry, sale in Saturday, April 15th. Yes, sir, that's the big G. Let's see where you can find it locally. Here's a note. In Jamaica, see Steve Posner or Mel Miller, Queens County Tire Corp, 105-109 Medic Boulevard. La -da hey, we got a couple of commercials. Hey, listen, speaking of commercials, I don't have uh, time here for a fantastic fanfare. But the please don't call the station uh, about tickets to uh, the big show we're going to do this Friday in Red Bank. Uh, I spent a great afternoon uh, this afternoon looking over the theater and working on the lights and all that. And I think it's going to be a great, wild evening. Uh, and now, here's the dope on this. Uh, Staggerwing Productions is presenting the Silver Tongue Duggle. Duggle, Dougal. <laughs> it's a misprint. That's me. I'll be at... Uh, we're going to celebrate the anniversary of the Great Orpheum Gravy Boat Riot. And uh, it's going to be April the 7th, this Friday, 
at 8 p.m. I'm, I'm going to be at the Carlton Theater in beautiful, historic downtown Red Bank, New Jersey. That's personal history. I had a fantastic evening once in Red Bank, which has left scars all over me. And that you had better get on a stick and get your tickets now. There's only one performance. A lot of people have called and asked. One show, just once. And it's going to be at 8 o'clock in the Carlton Theater, which is very easy to get to, just right down the Garden State. And where the sign says Red Bank, you turn off. And a couple of seconds later, you're in front of the Carlton Theater. It's right on Monmouth there, in the middle of Red Bank. It's a big theater. It's a beautiful theater. And uh, also, we've got along with us an old friend of mine, Dave Lisker, in the Sinful Street 2. And we're going to have this fantastic Bacchanal. Now, this is live. Remember that. Shepard is not going to be there in his, his famous uh, tape recording act. Uh, Shepard, in fact, may even do. We've, uh, we've tried to get to the police out there. We may be able to work it. Our famous underwater ballet. We've got the lights in there. We've got the tank, and, the, and the, all the pipes are in. And I got myself a new green sequined uh, bikini for it. And we may do it. Now, here's the here's the dope on tickets. And uh, you better get on the stick, man. They are really going. They are on sale at all Ticketron outlets. Just like the big hockey games. <laughs> at all Ticketron outlets. And they're all over. There's, there's hundreds of them around this area. And you can just, uh, for the nearest one, to find out where the nearest one to you is... All you have to do is call area code, if you live in New York, area code 212-644-4400. Give them a call, and they'll tell you where the nearest Ticketron agency is. Or you can call the box office. That's a Carlton box office at area code 201 in Jersey, 201-747-3800. That's 201-747-3800. Now, there are ticket turn outlets all over New York and Jersey, so you have no excuse if you boot it again. Right. <laughs> That's this Friday, the 7th, and I'm really looking forward. You know, this is the biggest show we've done uh, open to the public. See, most of the shows I do live, that is on stage, are done in colleges, and they're generally closed to the general public. Do maybe 30 or 40 of them a year, but this is the first and the biggest one I've done open to the general public since the one we did... Uh, two years ago at uh, Town Hall. And it's going to be a wild one. I'm looking forward to it. Now, here, we got a couple of other spots here. Let's see, we've done TAP here. March 31st. Should have been good news for most of you because on that day, most banks credited interest to its savings account, some at 5% a year, some as low as 4%. So you see, interest is credited and available in most banks every three months. Now, the question is, will you have to wait another three months before you get a dividend credited to your account? Well, guys who bank at Providence Savings Bank in Jersey City won't because uh, they credit dividends to all passbook savings accounts again on April the 28th. And they do that every month, the last day of every month. So if you'd like to find out about this, you simply write Provident, W-O-R, New York, 10018, and they'll send you a bank-by-mail kit. And they have uh, people who bank in that bank all over the country. Lump, da dum dum. Okay, that's Provident. Let's see now. Oh, we've got a lot of spots. Let's get let's get these spots out of the way. We're just loaded here tonight. General Tire, Birds, 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 Ballet. Ah, here we go. Birds, Birds. Hey, wait a minute now. Just a minute. Ah, that can't be right. No. Well, eh. dear, where's the? Oh, was the auto show on tape? E.T. 
Oh, yeah, the big old auto show. I'm, I I didn't see it this year. So let's hit the ding-dong, see what they have to say. It happens every spring. And it's wonderful. The International Auto Show at the Coliseum. Marvel at the moon car, ready to travel the lunar circuit. The future is here with the new electric autos. Admire antiques, classics, racers, experimentals. See stunning cars from all over the world, plus racing movies, beautiful models, fashions. It's an Easter holiday at the world's greatest auto show. The International Auto Show, New York Coliseum, now through April 9th. Hey, you know, speaking of the auto show, uh, that was big news in Tokyo. Uh, yeah, this auto show, there was a lot of stuff in the papers in Tokyo. The various... Uh, English versions of the Japanese papers because there is no nation and that includes our nation there is no nation on the face of the globe that is more automobile cuckoo than the Japanese they are out of their bird over it's fantastic that's all we talk about <laughs> and and uh, and uh, it's it's a it's it's a it's a big thing there there was a whole big uh, well, a whole page in one of the papers on the New York Auto Show. Now, that's, to me, fascinating, because here I was in Tokyo reading about, you know, a big event that's going on in New York, and I'll guarantee you that, say, in the New York Times, you will not read a full-page account of, let's say, uh, a big auto show in Tokyo. You simply won't. Uh, even the biggest one, the, the one, the, 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 there's one of the biggest ones in the year, is a big one... Uh, in Paris, big show in Paris. There's another big one in London. Barely mentioned in the local papers here. But uh, the Japanese are out of their mind over over uh, cars. Now, I, I this trip, the, the great thing I've discovered about taking a trip of this kind is the curious insights you get that you don't get if you stay longer in a place. Once I've discovered as a, as a traveler, and I've, I, this is about the third time that I've been around the world, one way or another, but this one is the first time I've ever gone around, actually, actually just gone around the world in one week, just steady, like just circum, circumnavigated the globe, just zapped right around the globe, that's all, in one week. And I discovered that, that, that something that I had been told a long time ago by an old veteran traveler, he says, you know, I want to tell you something. He says that, when you, if you want to really do anything on a country, if you want to take great pictures and draw good things, uh, if you do any painting or drawing, do it the first 28 hours or so when you arrive in a country, because after that, you will begin to lose the sharpness of your eye. For example, the, one of the first things that hit me in, uh, in, uh, say, let's take, for example, J Japan, the world of Jap the Japanese, something I'd never heard of before. You know, women's lib just hasn't come there. And, and so you see a lot of curious things. Do you know that in Japan, of course, they, they're great smokers. You, know, you, you probably know that the Japanese smoke a lot of cigarettes. They're real cigarette smokers. You see cigarette machines all over the place. Very jazzy, uh, uh, highly technical, fascinating, mod-looking cigarette machines. And, and uh, one of the things that hit me right there is they, well, you know Virginia Slims? You know the cigarettes, Virginia Slims? They ain't that in, in uh, Japan. Exactly the same package, probably the same company. You know what they're called over there? Sir Slims. <laughs> I just, I'm just laying it out. I don't make the news, honey. I just reports it. <laughs> and there they are. It's Sir Slims over the same company, same package. Identical package. 
which shows, you know, a, a vast difference in the whole culture. The idea of, of making a cigarette just totally for women is completely alien to the Japanese. And uh, but each one of these places, as you go, the, the more you, you, you go east, uh, as you begin this, this great world trip, uh, the, the more you begin to see that a lot of the things which you had always thought were cliches just ain't. In fact, you know what somebody has described a cliché as? They've described a cliché as something which is so true that people get tired of saying it. <laughs> that it is really true. See? So, so anyway, I, I, I was hit. I'm sitting in this plane, you know, and I'm flying along, and, and something had happened in Istanbul. And we're going a little further now, and I've been in Beirut for, for a while. We landed at Beirut, and it's another the thing that hit me about Beirut is that I was in Lebanon back in the in the in the late 50s i was in lebanon when they had do you recall when eisenhower sent marines into lebanon well i was involved in that i was on the carrier the essex the sixth fleet see so i was there when when all the un soldiers were there and there was firing going on up in the hills and uh, that's quite an airport it lays right on the ocean there well when we came into to uh, lebanon absolutely nothing had changed that's what hit me about it all the other airports in the world are always continually under construction. I have not been, even here in New York, you know, it seems like LaGuardia. They've been making LaGuardia ever since I've been here. <laughs> There's always a big sign, will you please excuse us for our rotten airport, but we're working on it. Well, I think that's a standard airport sign, except in Lebanon. They admit they got a rotten airport. They just leave it there. That's it. See? And it's the same building that was there when I was there, you know, including the same shifty-looking guys standing around selling dirty pictures on the outside, you know. So uh, <laughs> I, arrived, I arrived there in, in, in Lebanon, and, and, and we took off, and I'm on my way further east. And uh, something had happened, which I will tell later on in the week on different shows. It just hit me. Kipling was right. That's all I got to say. <laughs> you don't want to admit it, but he was right. And so we're, we're traveling on, and at the, the moment in Lebanon, of course, Lebanon is is a is a is a very interesting country. I've been in Lebanon several times, and I think it's a beautiful country. Uh, it is the classical country uh, that is the biblical country of milk and honey. And uh, in some ways, it is. It's a, it's a beautiful, ancient, uh, strange-looking, exotic-looking place. And uh, the, even the ground has just, just every time. Well, whenever I think of of that part of the the world, there's a there's a color to it. It's a sort of a, a red, yellowish color. This the world is just a reddish yellow, uh, sun-drenched color. And there's a smell to the air. And it's it's the smell, I guess, of baking rocks and ancient baking sand and uh, camels. <laughs> they actually do, you know. And so uh, we left we left uh, Lebanon, and we were on our way to to one of the cities that I really the, this this is the place that I've never never visited, flown over a couple of times, but this is the first time I ever was actually there, and I was going to stay there for a while, and I did, and I'm glad I did. This is Tehran, which is in the country of Iran, and uh, which not too many people talk about. It's funny. Here's a city of three, three million people. It's a huge city. And in many ways, one of the most modern cities I've ever seen in the, in the Middle East. It's, a, it's got the, 
it's got the, a, a curious atmosphere around it. But the first thing that hits you is the uh, are the mountains, the mountains that lay around this city. It's it's it, it just absolutely rimmed by mountains. And you look out of the window. I was in a hotel that was right at, right on the edge of the mountains. The mountains suddenly jut up, just stand up like a, like a great uh, a great backdrop to the city. And you look off to the other side of the of the mountains. You just lay this big city is laying there, and there's a the the, the mountains are snow covered. These are really big, high mountains, seventeen, sixteen, eighteen thousand feet. And the city itself is high. It's it's three or four thousand feet up. It's high up in the air there, and it's cold. There's a crisp coldness to it. You always think of the Middle East as hot. You know? No, no, Tehran was co- is cold. They, it really is a chilly, cold place, and the wind blows down off those mountains and comes over the, the snow. And uh, you can just feel it all the time. You feel that mountain wind blowing you. But the bazaar, which is the center, right in the heart of this city, the bazaar in Tehran, is, uh, is just uh, it's indescribable. It's like a gigantic mole heap. It's it's it weaves in and out goes you can go you can go for like uh, maybe fifty miles just never see the sun it's all covered over you see it's in and out these ancient buildings and there are thousands of guys sitting there drinking tea peering out of the darkness and they're selling everything from kerosene lamps to stuffed cobras <laughs> I mean ser- seriously I saw a stuffed cobra for sale so <laughs> here's all this stuff and it's just going on steadily and all these women walking around with the with the uh, with the gowns, some of them are still in Perda, you know. And that you're in, you know that you're, you just know you ain't in the Bronx. It's just, just it hits you right there, you know, right where it lives. So I'm I'm wandering in and out there, and I've I've just see I I, I as again I say I I don't uh, travel the way most people do. I don't have travel clothes or anything. I instantly uh, meld into the background, see and. And the guys were taking me as one of the sellers there. See, people kept plucking at my elbow, wanting to know, you know, where could they score and stuff like that. See, and I'm, I'm just walking along looking cool, you know, with my glass of tea in my hand, looking like I'm on top of it, you know. That's the only way. So, <laughs> that's the only way to go, man. You gotta blend in. Well, well, they, uh, then there's a certain thing, you see, you learn when you, when you go around the world. One of the things you should do is, is you should take about an hour or two hours off. And actually do the thing that the tourists do. In other words, actually go on a tour. Uh, you know, get in this bus, and you go around, and you see all this stuff. You see, immediately you see all the things which are in all the books. Once you've done that, you've paid your dues. Then you can go and sit in the bar, see, and look real mysterious. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and after that, you know, because uh, there are certain people who are, who are temple-oriented. In other words, there are people who really go to places to look at temples. Well, I, I uh, like Henry Ford, I feel once you've seen one temple, you've seen him, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm not a temple type. But uh, Tehran is, is, a, is, a, is another story. They play from the time of dawn, almost, well, in fact, it was, must have been before dawn, because they were playing when the dawn came up. Uh, my hotel was high up in the air. I'm looking down, and there was a big concrete part of a park. They had set up this big concrete a uh, flat, a uh, big slab out there, big huge concrete field, roughly about the size of uh, maybe Shea Stadium, big concrete thing out there, and all over the concrete place, there's 50 different games of soccer going on, and I mean it's uniformed. I mean these guys with the, these kids, they're all kids, you know, with with red jacket, red jerseys, blue jerseys, and green, and they're playing all the time. They were playing when the night time came. And uh, they were playing in the dawn again. So every time I think of this country, I always think of these guys that they're kicking these balls around. 
You know, it's just going on. Also, I, I, I think two of the of the Italian tourists. I am in a bar, this fantastic bar. Oh yeah, I'll tell you, there's there's nothing gives you the flavor of a country more than to go sit in a bar for just sit in a bar. You know, just don't just go in and sit. See, so I'm I go in this bar and sit down, and the guy comes in and says, "What do you What do you wish?" And I said, uh, uh, "Well." I said, ah, give me, yeah, yeah, I have a beer. So you have to sound like you, you know. So he gives you this native beer. Well, of course, you, uh, the beer all over the world, every place you go in every country, they all have their own beer there. And, and it's a very wise man who drinks the, the local beer. Don't don't sit down and immediately start hollering for a Schlitz or something, you know. You drink what they, their beer, see, so the beer comes and it's in this dark bottles and I pour it out that it's it's uh, it's heady beer you know it's rich and heady and it's it's uh, about the color of caro syrup you know it's a uh, dark beer see it's got a head on a man you could chip with an ice pick see so I, I pour this beer out so I start drinking the beer and I'm looking out through the window fantastic scene out, out the window of this bar it's about 11 stories up see and there's nothing but these fantastic mountains I'm looking at the mountains out there, and I could see part of the town laying below me there. So I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden I hear this, the voices. In, this is a very exotic part. It has, has uh, beads hanging down, you know, beads. You know, typical what you think of the Middle East, you know, beads, and it's got golden urns and stuff. And, uh, and right away I got to know the bartender. We're real good friends right there. It's right immediately, see, he, he could see I was a man of the world, see, after my fourth beer immediately. And I could see then he was a man of the world, too, see, so... We're, we're both eating these cashew nuts, and <laughs> he's drinking a beer with me, and we're in there by ourselves. And all of a sudden, in, in, in through, the, through the beaded curtains comes this whole crowd of little fat people and, and large fat ladies, and they're all twittering like birds, see? And so they come, a whole crowd of them, and they've all got these little instamatic cameras. So one of them says, Oh, Farucci, he's walking to the beat the tobacco, not the cover of photographer. And I said, What the hell is this? And they, they all gather around me and they're taking my picture, me and the bartender. See, and I imagine when they get back to, to Milano or wherever they come from, they have a picture of a typical Iranian native drinking beer in the middle of the afternoon. See, me. So I'm sitting there, they're taking my picture, oh, about, about 50 of them, and they're all running, oh, crotches, crotches, whoa, you know, and so with that, they all go swooping out, they don't even have a beer, nothing, they go out, see, and, and the bartender, he sort of grins, and he's a, he's a mysterious Levantine native, and he grins, and then he says, he, he says it so well, it was almost like the way W.C. Fields would say it, he says, eh, Italian people, <laughs> I said, yep, that's right, <laughs> I says, they take my picture. He said, yeah, my too. They come in every day taking my picture. I don't know what for. He says, can I freshen your beer? I says, yep. He pours another one. So we sat there. Hey, we got some commercials here. <laughs> Mysterious thing. We have birds, right? Birds. All right. All right, friend. If you ain't flown your bird in a long time, I have a suggestion here. Have a little bird here that you wind up, and it'll fly for you. And it's a great little bird. It's a happy combination of all kinds of things, psychological, metaphysical, and all the rest of it. And it's only 16 inches across, and you can get it in uh, yellow or white. Uh, beautiful yellow looks like a, a picture of a Leonardo da Vinci drawing, and the white one is a piece type. And uh, they really fly. They're great. Uh, we've had people leave home, just run away with her bird. So uh, <laughs> for 3.95, you can't do much better, friends, in this world. It's 
sad world. So uh, send in your check or your money order to Flying Birds, and you'll be suddenly surprised. They'll lay that bird right on you, and the next thing you know, a whole new vista will open up in your life. It comes packed in a box with uh, instructions for assembly and all that. It has a special tool with directions for replacing the extra set of rubber bands. That's fun in itself. I know guys just stick the rubber band and out, put it in again. They love it. Anyway, it's only three ninety-five, three ninety-eight actually, three ninety-eight. New York State residents add the tax, and it's guaranteed to fly. Send your check or money order to Flying Birds Department S, Post Office Box nineteen nine. Grand Central Station. You got it? New York, New York. Okay. And that's the flying bird spot for tonight. Hey, you know, uh, this week, as I say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a whole show, a whole series of shows about this trip around the world. Fantastic experience. I don't quite know how to say it, uh, cause it's, it's such a, such a kaleidoscopic thing in my mind, but, uh, I'll just give you a brief skimming tonight as I left, uh, Tehran. On the way to uh, absolutely my favorite city in all of the Orient, if not one of my favorite cities in the world, I really enjoy this city. I was really looking forward to getting there, and I warned everybody, you know, before we got there. I says, man, if uh, if you don't, uh, you know, just the people who were on the plane, they were then a lot of them had never been there before, and I said, be 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 sure of one thing, it's going to be hot, really hot, and uh, not only that, you're going to dig it, you're going to really love it. And sure enough, about uh, two hours later, we're coming in over this green, fantastic uh, landscape, and you could see the, you could see it all rolling out there before you. We had flown out over, over some some of the wildest country in the world to get there, and we're coming down. And we have to take a special route, you see, because there's war going on all around this country now. And believe me, if this poor little country gets involved in this war, it's going to be really sad. It's Thailand. And the the city is Bangkok, and I really enjoy Bangkok. I like the people and the the whole feel of the city. And five minutes after the plane rolled to a stop, and I was going through that wild, fantastic, uproarious, totally disorganized airport that is in Bangkok. And uh, I get I get in the car on my way into the city. There was a funny feeling, you know. I'm back here again. I spent some great times on one trip around the world in Bangkok one time before. But the going through the streets, uh, it was just a curious, familiar feeling. It all came back again. Just the people, the look of the people. And incidentally, the people of Bangkok, uh, the, the Thai people, have to be the most beautiful people on the face of the globe. They are incredibly pretty. Beautiful people. I mean, physically beautiful people. And they got a soul to match. I want to tell you, they are something else. So <laughs> I'm, fl- I'm going along in that car, you know. I, I arrive back at the ho- at this this magnificent hotel with the palm trees and the hot. Oh God, was it hot? You know, it's 95 degrees. I strip down. I put on my uh, my Puka Sahib shorts. I get out my pith helmet. And I get that, that, that look around the eyes of a Somerset mom character who spent too much time on the other side of Rangoon where the sun comes up like thunder out of Burma across the way. Oh, God. This is going to be a week, friends. Yep. WOR New York, and you stay tuned for John Scott and the News. 
A senator and a governor are looking good so far in the Wisconsin Democratic presidential primary, while another senator and a mayor fall behind. WOR's Lester Smith reports live from Milwaukee on the latest primary returns. John, I think one would have to say at this point, with 36% of the statewide vote in the Wisconsin Democratic presidential primary tally, that Senator George McGovern is winning an impressive and very important victory in this Wisconsin primary, in this 12-man field, which, of course, has only really six major candidates. He is not only winning an impressive victory numerically, he is running far out front in the quest for delegates, and he is also doing surprisingly well in virtually every area of this very complex, politically complex state. We'll uh, we'll check some figures first and then go into some analyses. We now have 37% of the entire vote. That's uh, 1,206 of the 3,290 statewide precincts. And here's what we have. Senator McGovern, who had been holding for almost an hour, an hour 29%, has now gone up to 30% of the total vote, or 151,137. In second place, as was pretty much expected, is Senator Hubert Humphrey of neighboring Minnesota. He has 22%. He is trailing McGovern by 7%, considerably more than it had been expected, because while McGovern was generally conceded to be the favorite, Senator Humphrey was expected to make it a very, very close race. But the important thing here is the fact that throughout the night, Alabama's Governor Wallace has been hanging on to a very firm third place, only two percentage points behind Humphrey, with 20% of the total vote cast, or 103,132. The time apparently has come for a number of the Democratic presidential hopefuls to reconsider their thinking and to think perhaps in terms of uh, pulling out and throwing whatever strength they have to other candidates. Because Senator Ed Muskie, who, as uh, everyone knows, was the frontrunner amongst the Democrats until the first of the primaries started in New Hampshire, is now going through his third agonizing experience. He is in a very poor fourth place with only 11% of the vote, 57,397. He has not even done well in a couple of the congressional districts in this state where it was expected that he would show his greatest strength. Senator Henry Jackson, who uh, had a good showing in the Florida primary, is uh, coming up today with a very inadequate one. He has 8% of the vote. He is in fifth place. And, of course, New York City's Mayor John Lindsay is, uh, again, uh, as far as Mr. Unfortunately for Mr. Lindsay, is just about falling on his face here. Uh, despite all his claims and the claims of his campaign people yesterday that there was a switch to Lindsay, if there was a switch, somebody has thrown, turned that switch off and uh, turned the whole thing into sheer darkness because, as he did in Florida, he's running with only 7% of the vote, and he is in sixth place. But I think what is even more impressive as far as the McGovern performance is concerned, that in the state's nine congressional districts, the senator is doing exceptionally well in five congressional districts where he was not expected to do very well. For example, in the southeast corner of the state, which is the first congressional district, which is a combination of two industrial cities, we're seen in Kenosha with major unemployment problems, and then a heavily Republican uh, farm area, and which had been generally expected to be Humphrey and Muskie country, McGovern is leading by a very substantial margin. Uh, he is leading by a very strong margin in the second congressional district, which does include the center of the state's liberal democratic area. But here is one of the most interesting developments in the third congressional district, which is the south central area, uh, not the south central, but that is the west central area of the state, adjacent to the state of Minnesota, which was expected to certainly go for Humphrey, Senator McGovern is only trailing Humphrey by a handful of votes and uh, is doing very, very well. He is doing very well in a couple of other areas where he was not expected to, so you can sense that he has a statewide strength 
among surprisingly enough blue-collar workers, farm workers, uh, factory workers, and uh, even in, uh, in matter of fact, in one of the most conservative areas of the state, uh, the uh, the central area, the 8th Congressional District, which is where the Green Bay area is, uh, which is the area which sent uh, Joseph McCarthy to the United States Senate. He's even doing fairly well in that district. As a matter of fact, he's running two to one better than Humphrey and has an edge on